Welcome to another episode of Chic Compass Connection. This podcast will give you a glimpse into the window of the popular Chic Compass magazine, where we feature art, music, design, fashion, dining, and all things chic for the culture-starved audiences of the world. To view our magazine online, visit chiccompass.com. That's C-H-I-C-C-O-M-P-A-S-S dot com. We would also like to thank the Vegas Room in the Historic Commercial Center in Las Vegas, Nevada, for inviting us to their supper club to broadcast our show. I'm your host, Jamie Hosmer. Let's introduce today's guest. John Parenti is a composer, record producer, and recording studio owner with a diverse background in the recording industry. John has worked extensively in the Christian market, but has also composed many jingles for TV and radio. He also works in the audio post-production market, directing voiceover talent for radio commercials and mixing everything from podcasts to short films and even sound effects editing. John Parenti, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jamie, it's good to be here. Great to have you. So, you know, first first of all, I'd love to start off by asking you, how did you get started in this crazy business? Did you, did you, you know, when you were a kid, did you say, you know, did you see the Beatles or did you see somebody and say, man, I need to be in music? How did, how did it start for you? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Um, there's a, a book I read a long time ago that's called The Soul's Code. And the basic thing is we have these things that are kind of woven into our DNA. And when we get exposed to them, we light up. And we don't know why, but it's, it's inherent. It's somehow built in. And uh, for me, that happened at four, four years old. Wow. My older brother had a band, and I, I can't verify how good they were or how they might <laughs> you know, stand up in today's world, but they were rehearsing in our living room, and I looked over and I saw the drummer, and something went off inside me that, you know, for a four-year-old was monumental, and I remember very clearly thinking, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Wow. And so... Everything else was either a diversion or in addition to, but like a rubber band, I kept snapping back to something that had to do with music and usually music that had to do with drumming. And so that, that just became my foundation. And so they immediately started buying me drums. My poor mother, you know, I, my, my <laughs> soul's code couldn't have been the flute. It had to be <laughs> drums, but, but they were supportive. So they started with a snare drum and then a little kind of, you know, Buddy Rich kit. And then, you know, it just progressed from there. And so the basement or the attic of the house was always mine. Wow. So who was your first drum hero? Uh, easily Buddy Rich. Uh, I fell in love with big band jazz. Okay. And, uh, you know, behind him would be Louis Belson and behind him would be Gene Krupa. So... You know, you can obviously get the era, but I I heard Buddy play, and then I got to see him live a few times, and I, I was one of those kids that would just show up at the record store and buy every record the day it was released, go home, throw my headphones on, listen to what he did, and I'm sure like someone singing in the car feeling like I'm just as good as that guy on the radio. As a kid, you know, you think I'm actually nailing these solos, but... Uh, I, so I did that. I took 12 years of lessons 
and uh, played in every band, you know, that I could find. And one cool little thing is I was living in Las Vegas and I was a teenager. Okay. And the lessons weren't getting it done because the guys teaching, you know, they had good hearts, but they just weren't really, you know, advanced drummers. And so I was going, you know, just going through all the books and, and I finally went to my dad and I said, you know, dad, I, I'm not learning anything from these guys that's going to help me. And I said, there's a drummer on the strip who plays really well. I mean, if I could take lessons from that guy, uh, then I'd, I'd really be getting somewhere. And I think I'm 13, 14 years old. Okay. So we go to the casino and I walked up to the guy after, in between sets and I said, tell you, I told him I was a lifelong drummer and, you know, would he give me lessons? And he kind of laughed at me and said, I, d- I don't do lessons, son. Like, uh, you know, look around oh, wow. like he's, you know, he's in a, he's in a pit with, a, <laughs> with an orchestra. He's like, no, that's not what I do. And my dad went up to him. I'm not sure what was said or, or, or how much was exchanged or what the offer was that couldn't be refused. But the next Saturday morning, he was at my house giving me an hour and a half lesson. Wow. And that's where I really, uh, I don't know, that's where I, I, I really started to, to, to take off and get some fresh wind under my wings. And uh, we did that for about a year and a half every Saturday morning. And finally, he just turned to my dad and he said, I'd like to keep taking your money, but I think he's better than I am. So I, I think we're done here. And so I don't know if that was puffery or, or what, but that was, that was a big turning point for me. So I was a serious drummer and started playing in a lot of studios around town and then started getting calls to go to Nashville and play drums on jingles. Uh, and then, you know, I've, I got together with a, a Christian singer-songwriter who was just emerging. He had had a, a big secular record on CBS. He's pretty well-known, but he was just about to break out in the Christian world. And I met him right at that time, and we said, let's do it. Let's form a band. I got all my guys from my high school bands, and we drove down to California and got a really big record deal. I mean, for the time... 50,000 bucks per production. And this is in 1979. Wow. So that's amazing. That's a healthy budget. I'm going to back up a little bit. And actually, so how do you go from, so you grew up in Las Vegas. You start taking drum lessons from a a professional working drummer um, who then tells you you're ready to go. And, And then did you travel and go to Nashville? From Vegas? Uh, So I stayed in Vegas as my home base. And that's where I met a singer-songwriter who was just about to emerge on the world stage. It was just great timing. And we became best of friends. And so we would he'd pick me up at school, and we'd go to a restaurant and dream about our music careers every day, every afternoon. And we'd, you know, that's what you do when you're a teenage kid— and you're a musician, you just dream about the records we're going to make and the tours. And and I have to say, a bunch of it really came true. We made a bunch wow. of hit records together, and we toured the world. And you Let's know. talk about those. So you so you get a record deal. You get a pretty good-sized record deal. You, move, you go to Southern California. Uh, what was the label that signed you guys? Uh, it was called Sparrow Records. 
Sparrow and, uh, Records. Billy okay. Ray Hearn was the CEO. And they they were kind of the elite record company. At the time, there were basically two. Word Records yep. had six or 700 artists, a lot of big ones. Sparrow had maybe 20, but they were very elite. They were kind of the top of the top. Second chapter of Axe, Keith Green. For people that know that world, it was it was rare air. And we, we cold called him, actually. We cold called the CEO and just told him who we were and said, we want a record deal and we want it right now. And he was like, well, he's a Texan. He said, well, why don't you boys come on down? So, <laughs> so my buddy and I got in his 280Z and we drove down to the Sparrow Records headquarters and marched in and played him our demo tape. And he was tapping his foot and he looked happy as a lark and he got all done and he said, well, let me tell you, I think you boys actually are dime a dozen. I see people like you every day. And then he got us up and marched us around the room and showed us all the records on the wall. And he said, you see these people? Those, are, those, those aren't just musicians. Those are prophets. Those are people that are changing the world. You boys have some good tunes. It was, it was heartbreaking. So wow. we went back, we drove back home to Vegas. And three weeks later, we're rehearsing and the phone rings. And I pick it up and it's the CEO of Sparrow. And I told my buddy, the singer-songwriter, it's more his band than mine. I said, get on the line. And so we got on the line and said, I've had a change of heart about you boys. I think you better get back down here. So we weren't <laughs> sure what that meant, but it sure sounded good. So we got back in the 280Z. We drove down. He took us out to lunch. He pulled out an envelope, you know, like, you, like they talk about, you know, in the movies. It, this is actually exactly how he did it. Set the envelope down and wrote, wrote down $50,000. It was in 1979, so that's a big budget. And uh, we said, well, we know exactly the kind of record we want to make, and we know who we want to produce it, because my singer-songwriter friend had been in business with a very big producer named Brent Mayer. He was Nashville-based, and he had just a great um, pedigree, he recorded, he was the engineer for sitting on the dock of the bay. Mm-hmm. And um, he engineered Mr. Bojangles. Oh, and, wow. And then later in life, he discovered the Judds uh, because wow. one of the Judds was in the hospital from a car accident and his, his daughter was the nurse. And, and this mother-daughter team said, give this tape to your dad and literally gave a cassette tape to my buddy Brent. So, so Brent is very entrenched in the Nashville scene and was a great producer. And we had a longtime relationship with him doing jingles and things. My buddy had a, a whole business with him. So we told the record label, we want to go to Nashville and cut this with a, a live band with Brent. And at okay. that time, a lot of the, the Christian music felt a little canned, a lot of... Um, Oh, I don't know. A lot of the DX7 synths, if people know what that is, it's it was oh, yeah. just kind of pretty and kind of um, sanitized. And we were, you know, our music was real, you know, clean and very well arranged, but it was more live. It was rough and tumble. We had great players and, and we wanted to expand our playing. And, and so he agreed. So he sent us to Nashville and we spent a couple of weeks uh even putting my drums in the drum booth didn't work because it was too canned. So 
we were all just out in the room together and we made kind of like a, a live record, but just sounding better. Mm-hmm. And that thing instantly went to number one in the country and started wow. getting a ton of airplay and kind of changed the trajectory of Christian music because it had, you know, on the vocals, it had kind of a Seals and Croft, Bee Gees kind of sound. And with the rhythm section, we were all just young guys fresh out of school, but very proficient at our instruments. And so, you know, we played a lot of complexity and we had, you know, I had a jazz background and my keyboard guy had a huge jazz background. His name's Jeff Lambs, and he's still very well known in Las Jeff Vegas. Jeff Lambs? Are you kidding me? We were high school best friends. Okay, so I play a gig in church every Sunday with Jeff Lambs playing keys. Well, there's a six, de- <laughs> six degrees right there. So <laughs> He recently moved back to Vegas, and uh, wow, what a wonderful musician, wonderful person Jeff is. I, it's Brings a smile to my face for you just to mention his name. Yeah, musical director for Donna Summers for a long time. Yep, that's right. And uh, so we were high school buddies, and when I met my friend Benny, who was the singer-songwriter I'm talking about, the first call I made was to Jeff Lambs and said, Jeff, we're forming a band and you have to play the keyboards. You know, And so uh, Jeff and I, uh, to this day, when I'm producing records, I'll often, you know, depending on what I'm looking for, call Jeff and have him work up a track and send it to me. Or if he's in California, I'll bring him to my studio. And yep. uh, he's he's played on a couple of the last few projects I did. So this goes back, uh, we're talking the 70s. So th- this is, you know, a 50-year relationship. So what was the name of... Of the band, you guys, you said you had you had big number one hits, and what was the name of that band? So um, the artist, his name is Benny Hester. Okay. And so we just called ourselves the Benny Hester Band, and he was a singer songwriter um, out of Waco, and then to Las Vegas mainly. He was trying to get to L.A. into Hollywood, and somehow got snagged in Vegas. And uh, so he was he was he just had all this potential. He was a great writer is a great writer. He was on the cusp. It was one of those things, you know, when you you find someone and you meet them and they are right about to break out into greatness and and you're just lucky to have come along at the time you did. And we met under just a very unusual circumstance where he saw me in a concert the night before. I was playing drums. It was a pretty big concert. It was a thousand or two thousand people. And my my band I was with, <laughs> you know, they weren't they were kind of weekend warriors, and okay. I, I was a serious musician. But mm-hmm. I enjoyed the music. I didn't know Benny. He didn't know me. But he was in attendance. The next day, as happenstance has it, I run into Benny. I'm sitting next to him at an event, and he turns around and says, "I think I've seen you. <laughs> I think I've seen you. Aren't you a drummer?" And I said, "Yes." And he said. Did I see you last night in concert? And I said, "Well, what what concert did you see?" And he told me, and yes, he did. 
And he's, he, he just kind of stopped and put his head down. He said, that band's not very good. I said, I know that. <laughs> I said, I'm aware of that. <laughs> but but I, I love the guys. We're having a lot of fun. He said, but you are. He said, you're really different. He said, you and I ought to form a band right now because I'm about to go get a record deal. You know, wow. that's that's the ambition you have when you're young enough yeah. to not know all the things that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. And boy, is that good advice for people. Stop thinking about what can go wrong. Mm-hmm. If, you know, just think about what if it goes right? Yep. You know, like James Dean said, I, I try my luck several times a day because what if I've been lucky all day and I didn't know it? You know, that's right. <laughs> so when you're that's young, great. you just uh, you just go out and say, "Well, I'm going to go get a record deal. We're going to form a band, and we'll and we'll get famous, and and we'll we'll change music." And, you know, and so you know, so you strive for perfection, and uh, along the way, maybe you'll catch excellence if yeah, no, if nothing that's else. Fair. What a what a great story, though, and you know what seems like these happenstance sort of chance meetings. You know, maybe what's your view on that? Are these are these destiny is it were you guys destined to meet was it just by chance i i interested in your take on that I, if if i knew how the universe worked uh you know i'd, I'd put it in a bottle and 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 i'd you know i'd know a lot more than i do mm-hmm. but i'm i'm sure not naive and so when i see these things happen and they happen to all of us you know when we're open to it and when we're kind of maybe in the right mindset to attract it you know, as as a Christian, as a believer, I I think that you know there's a guiding hand that kind of brings intersections together, and I think we have a lot of choice what we do with that, and we can sometimes mess it up or sometimes get ahead of our skis, and you know, but I think opportunities like that, you know, are are divine intervention, but it's kind of up to us to. To recognize an open door, to see an opportunity, because they happen once in a while. Those things that could change the trajectory of your life, and you need to be agile enough and and positive enough to stop what you're doing and say, you know, that door over there just opened, and that looks really good. I think I'm gonna. I have to go check that out because that's that's interesting that that just happened. And you know, sometimes it's very small things that lead to very big things. They don't seem big at first. It's just mm-hmm. one conversation. But if you get that little feeling in your gut, or you just get that kind of green light, or however you want to say it, just pursue it. Like, let go with it, because it, that's what turns into the big things. And if you... That's great advice. I think if you ask people that have done great things in the world, and you backtrack into how it started, it... it rarely started grandiose it usually started with a meeting a conversation or a thing that went wrong so they did something else because that meeting got canceled so i took that meeting you know so just you know take take the thing in front of you you know because the small doors lead to the other doors amazing that's fantastic advice for everybody okay so let's 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 move forward to uh you also are a recording studio owner. You, you've done a lot of work uh, for jingles, for TV, for radio. Um, how do you go from sort of composing and and writing and recording in the Christian market to the jingle and TV and radio world? Yeah, it was. Um, it's a good story, but a, a, a little bumpy story musically because 
I had to learn a new language musically. Uh, being a composer, I started getting my writing chops in the in the eighties. So I'm dating myself here, but uh, I started writing primarily in the Christian market, and uh, that went really well, better than I I expected. I was a concert promoter. I was bringing in a lot of acts, so I knew all the people. I had been a DJ at a Christian radio station, so I knew all the music, and was, sure. I, you know, I was very entrenched in 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 all of it. And so, uh, I started writing, and I had some songs that did really well, and some songs that went to number one, and actually got cut by other bands, and and kept going to number one on multiple, even in multiple decades. Wow. I've had the same song be number one in three different <clears throat> decades with three different bands. Wow. So, um, so I I really got the writing bug, and uh, in 1990 I opened my studio and started producing, and and also writing with people, and and then I I got into the advertising world, and and that that kind of led to the world of jingles, okay. and and that happened just for one reason. I, you know, I, I was getting hired out to do lots of things, producing, and I got a phone call from a, an ad agency to come produce a bunch of their radio and television spots. I didn't know anything about it, but I, I did it. You know, the answer mm-hmm. is always yes. Uh-huh. So I, I was in their little dinky studio and didn't know anything, you know, when I'm directing, I'm directing Mark Hamill over the phone doing voice talent for Food for Less and wow. I'm telling him to read it this way, read it that way. It was so dumb. I didn't know. Wow. I, I didn't even really know much about who he was. I, I'm just still trying to find my way with the board and the buttons. <laughs> well, you knew he was Luke Skywalker. I did right? know that. Yes, but you know, I didn't know how to how to you know sell the five pound bag of russet potatoes. Exactly. So, and then exactly. the owner of the ad agency walks in. Big, tall, blonde guy walks walks in and says, "Who are you?" And I, I told him who I was, and I said, who the heck are you? And he said, I own the place. I said, well, I have a confession. I don't know what I'm doing. They, <laughs> they called me in here, and I said, yes, I'm supposed to make these commercials and send them out to 300 radio stations. I, I'm a music guy. He said, oh, don't worry about it. We love music. And it was just super friendly, and it was one of those connections, like, this guy's going to be in my life the rest uh-huh. of my life. I knew it. Uh-huh. That So... Here's a here's a thing I'd always heard. If you have a great idea, you ought to be able to write it down on one sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. You know, if it takes you longer than that, it's probably not a great idea. So I had an idea, I, and I just thought, what if since they're a big agency and they've got a big, you know, building and they've got a you know really nice facility, what if I moved my studio in with them and took a a part of their building? Okay. And I'll figure out how to do this radio and TV thing, and I'll give them a cut rate, and I'll write their jingles. But when I'm not doing that, I'll have this really nice facility where I can produce records for my artists. And, it, you know, I wouldn't have to necessarily pay rent because I just would have this great space. Right. And they would get the advantage of having all of my equipment, which was very state-of-the-art, and theirs sounded very poor. They had, you know, just a mm. closet for a studio. So I said, basically, you know, you'd have a whole wing of your building as like a huge audio wing you could show off to potential clients. Your radio and TV is going to sound great. Your music, you're going to get at a cut rate. 
and I'll be in this beautiful building. And, and he basically read the whole thing and, and said, yes. And we shook hands and, you know, never put a thing on paper, just a nice handshake. And, right. And so for over 20 years, we had that relationship. And even as they would move and upgrade to the bigger building in Newport beach and the bigger, bigger building, then I always got the big prime wing for my studio. And wow. So it was just a relationship that always worked. And and so I had to figure out how to write jingles. And that was, that was hard because as a songwriter, you think about, you know, an intro, a verse, a lift, a chorus, a turnaround, you know, and what the bridge needs to do. And you, you're telling the story, right? Well, jingles aren't, aren't that, you know, jingles, you know, they have to have the sensibility of a, you know, what, what they call in the advertising world, a brief, you get a brief about um, a product and, and the culture of the company that you're trying to promote and your music has to reflect the culture of the company. And then typically, they're not going to use a whole sing of 30 seconds. There might be a, mm-hmm. a sting or a donut, which a donut is when there's a sing at the beginning, then the announcer talks in the middle, and then maybe a sing at the end. Right. You know, if you're lucky, you, you get more singing in there. Um, <laughs> So the first couple of jingles I did sounded more like songs squished into 30 seconds, and yep. they just didn't work very well. But I finally kind of cracked the code a little bit, and then I started, you know, that's when the jingles really started taking off. And uh, I started writing songs then for companies like IHOP. Some of them I wrote as as kind of uh, tender um, songs, really full thirty second sings, uh-huh. uh, and they liked it so much they scrapped the whole idea, which is very unusual for a retail company. They scrapped the whole idea of an announcer, and they would just play my spots nationwide with nothing wow. but the visuals in front, you know, that you see on TV. And my song singing, and maybe. And what, so, what years are we talking about here? Oh, I want to say that started in the late 90s. But uh, so that would, you know, that happened. And then they'd come back and say, well, IHOP would like to do a thing in the urban markets. Can you do the same song with kind of a an urban feel? And I'd right. recut the whole song. And then they'd come back and say, well, you know, their Spanish market's really big. Yeah. And every time they said that, I, I'm thinking, ka-ching. That's yeah. a that's a nice royalty situation yep. there because anyone that knows about royalties knows that if they're singing yep. in your jingle, it's a whole different world than if it's just an instr- instrumental. So anytime they ask you to put a sing, even if they don't ask you, I put a sing on it, and I can always take it off. So yes. I ended yes. up doing a lot of versions over years, and then ended up doing them for A and P grocery chain back east. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ralph's grocery chain here in the West. Yep. A and P. That was uh, you know I'm from Massachusetts, so that was that was the grocery store. A and P. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you, that's what you said as a kid is you want to go to the A and P. You didn't even that's say right. the store. 
That's right. Your mom just said, go with me to the A&P. Exactly. uh, So it was a kick when they flew me back to Hackensack, New Jersey, (laughs) to and and built a booth in the produce aisle. uh, And I I recorded and produced Kelly Ripa. She was the spokesperson for a couple of years. (laughs) So I had her in this booth. We were both getting high because it smelled like paint. I don't know where where they got the blankets from, but it was dark and it was tough to do. But but we knocked out all you know enough voiceover from Kelly to do a couple of years worth of commercials. Wow! And then I came back home and wrote the jingle for the TV and radio campaign. After aisle, after aisle. My kids love this. Be sure to look at the bottom of your receipt. You see that number? It's gonna be less, way less. You want lower prices? We hear you. The Lower Price Project, only at AMP and Wallbaum. So it was kind of a kick, and I wish my mom had been around to see it because you know I was her youngest, and we went to the AMP all the time. So here I am selling. Wow. A and P with Kelly Ripa. It was, you know, it's kind of a that's kick. so amazing. That's such an amazing story, uh, and and you're you're able to have your full studio there. Um, what percentage were you were you still bringing in artists to yes. record? Yes, I was. So you were still able to do that at the same time as you were doing jingles. Yes, and that was <clears throat> that was the the perfect combination for me because when I'm working with an artist they're putting all of their dreams of their future in my hands. It's very emotional. It's very, it's, it gets your heart. Like you, it's not a gig. It's a life calling. You're trying to do something for this person. And if you don't get it right, it has a direct impact on their life. Mm-hmm. And they're very emotional about it. And they sometimes get hyper involved in every note of what you're doing and, and why it doesn't sound like the thing they just heard on the radio. And, you know, it's, it's very, um, you, you pour your soul into it and it's exhausting. But when you're doing radio production and jingles, it's not that way. It's, it's more of a gig. You still love it. It's still music and it's enjoyable, but you do it, you hand an invoice, you get a check, you shake hands, you say, that was fun. What's next? They say, oh, well, you know, the Clippers, the basketball team, they need music. (laughs) Okay, well, let's do that, you know. And so it was the right combination of kind of during the day, I had this kind of work-a-day thing with my music in my studio using the same tools. And then, you know, you start transitioning to evening, and then all my players are coming in and my singers coming in, you know, and then then your your heart just goes in a little different direction and and it was the yeah. right balance and i think if if i had to do music for artists all day every day i think it would have aged me a lot faster and and so this and sometimes the best artists have the smallest budget mm. and the ones that have the biggest budget you know maybe don't have the biggest potential so I found so it was a good balance for you. Yeah, if you could do the day gig, you know, and write jingles and do radio production, and I, I literally knocked out over ten thousand radio commercials over the years. Wow! I really did a lot of volume, like kill them with quantity. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Wow, so what, I, that's so fantastic, though. So, um, what do you do? What are you doing now? So, uh, the lockdown's been kind of interesting. Um, mm. 
my musicians are suffering greatly because they make oh, yeah. most of their money doing their live gigs mm-hmm. on tour. You know, they my guys tour the world or they play the baked potato in Hollywood or whatever, but yep. they're always gigging. Yep. And that's dried up. So yep. um I'm one of them. I know. You know, okay. <laughs> so so my world has changed in that I have some new artists that I want to introduce to the world, and they're phenomenal. I mean, really great singer-songwriters, but I can't do what I need to do with them yet because it involves, you know, with when you're breaking a new artist, I want them next to me, and I want yeah. to be moving the microphone in front of their face and having them sing yeah. for three hours and there's just no way to to do this six feet apart or remote or Zoom. Mm-hmm. So so they're just in 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 a holding pattern. Okay. Um, but at just the right time, a composer uh, came to me and he's a longtime friend and said, "Now's the time. I want the world to hear my music, and it's all instrumental. So that you really can do by remote." So he sends me MIDI files of him playing on the piano. Okay. And he's a phenomenal composer. And from classical to romantic to smooth jazz, you know, every style, very well-trained. And he'll send me a MIDI file, and I'll call up a great piano sound and put all of my toys on it. And you wouldn't be able to tell it's not... A real, you know, I'll call up a, a Bosendorfer and put it in a in Carnegie Hall and move the mics sure. around and flip the lid higher and change yeah. the resonance on the on the board and you know even change the yeah. felt on the with the keys hitting it and you know so it's pretty good and then I'll call up um, a solo violin or if it's a smooth jazz I get all my great Hollywood guys. And I'll just record them one at a time and I'll direct them over Skype or Zoom and get the performance that I need. And they send it to me. And we've been working on this since uh, March. And we've built up a phenomenal record. And part of it is smooth jazz. And I've used some of the greatest players in the world. On the last song, I used Marc Antoine on (laughs) nylon string uh, acoustic guitar. And it was phenomenal. Wow. Uh, a guy named Alan Hines up in Hollywood does a lot of my blues and, and jazz. Uh, and so these guys are, okay. are just the best of the best. Do you and play I, drums on it? And I play drums, yeah, because as a producer, the one perk is you get to hire yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's so right. So uh, the one thing I still know how to do. Um, so I'll do drums. And and depending on the on the record, you know, I'll bring in different people. Uh, Jeff Babco is a great keyboard player. Oh, yes, uh, he is. I've used him a bunch. Uh, Jamie Mahobarak is also one of my favorites. They okay. all do different things. Uh, if anyone wants to look them up, they all have a very different yep. style. And depending on the song, I just you know want to p- plug in a certain guy. Yeah. And uh, and and because things are you know going well for us, knock on wood. You know, I'm trying to hire as many of my players as I can. I'm trying to overpay them. Sure. If they quote a price, I, I always pay them more than whatever they quoted. Uh, I'm p- probably putting more instrumentation on each song than it is required, <laughs> just because 
I want to yeah. give a gig to another guy, you know, but yeah, but but the music's not suffering because of it. It's actually pretty rich. So so this is what I'm doing a lot of right now. And what's the um, name of the artist? His name is John Giannone. Okay. And uh, he and you can actually hear the music at Giannone Music. And it's uh, the spelling you have to get right or you get misdirected. It's uh, G-I-A-N-N-O-N-E. Okay. There are two N's in the middle, one N at the, you know, the back. Yeah. And then... Well, that's great. My music for my pop, you know, more... You know, I'm kind of an indie pop producer. Okay. Uh, my favorite guy is, is uh, a gypsy jazz kind of singer-songwriter who's just the most talented guy. And his name is John Garner. And uh, he's on my website. And then I did work with a, a really great uh, indie pop singer named Summer Grace Watson. Okay. Those are both on my website, which is parentimusic.com. Parentimusic.com. Yeah. We'll make sure we, we put that in the links, too, on the description of the yeah, yeah. Uh, of this show. Um, wow. Well, that's great. I'm glad you're, you're keeping busy. You're putting uh, musicians to work. And uh, you're helping artists um, achieve their vision. Uh, so that is fantastic. Um, uh, I have one, one final question for you. Uh, actually, I have two final questions for you. The first one is... That sounds like a pastor. When he says final, you know there's about four <laughs> more points. And when, when he hits like, finally, finally, he might be getting toward the end. So do you remember the name of the of your drum instructor from Las Vegas? I've I've racked my brain. I've even gone on to local Las Vegas websites <laughs> to, to to and I it just doesn't come back to me. Okay. And so I'll try to do some digging. I know oh. a lot of musicians here, so I'll try to do some digging. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you what little information I have, you know, off the, off the air, you know, and maybe you can sleuth okay. sleuth around because I'd I'd love to say thank you someday, you know. So next next question is, what advice would you give to the younger generation that want to be artists or want to be in the music business today? Uh, that's pretty easy. Um, if you listen to what everyone else is doing, you're, you're really getting what, what they dreamt up two years ago and what they produced last year and what's just getting to you now. By the time you chase it and produce it and create it, you're so far behind the curve that you just end up as kind of a, it's, it's like an artifice. It's, it's, not, it's not really probably going to cut through all the noise and all the other people trying to sound like someone else. But if you just find your own voice, find your own style, even if it doesn't have a name, if there's no genre called after it, just make your own genre, you know, but do something that's authentically good and, and let it be different. Don't, don't listen too much to what's out there. You know, there's an inner voice and there's an inner creative engine inside you. Let that be your guide. Develop it. Make it undeniably good. And then this, this, the part B of this is nothing will ever happen to you good without collaboration. So it's about relationships. Find great people and keep in touch with them. Find great players and uh, people that support you and 
do projects together and write together and play together. And, you know, it's, it's in the com- combination of personalities that are all doing unique things. You know, that's how a Steely Dan gets born. You know, that, that's, that's how something, that's how a Billie Eilish happens. You know, it, it's somebody that just does something uniquely them. And usually they have someone right next to them that has a different skill, you know, so maybe she can yeah. sing and play, but her brother can, you know, work the controls and produce. And before it ever even gets to an outside studio for, you know, the, the third layer of production, it's already undeniably good. So that's kind mm-hmm. of my advice, I think, is, you know, it's great. Unique voice. It's great advice. Well, John Parenti, this has been a fantastic conversation. I thank you so much for spending your time with me. And uh, I hope to do this again soon. Uh, Jamie, thank you. It's a pleasure. And um, I hope maybe it's been entertaining and maybe a little helpful to any young, young players out there. Most definitely. Have a great day, John. You have been listening to the Chic Compass Connection podcast. To learn more about Chic Compass magazine, visit chiccompass.com. That's C-H-I-C-C-O-M-P-A-S-S.com. Thanks again to The Vegas Room for hosting us. Visit thevegasroom.com to find out more about this great supper club. This is Jamie Hosmer. Thanks for listening.